Our Sunday morning series is the book of Psalms, and this morning our passage is Psalm 10. So if you have a Bible, find Psalm 10. There's some notes in the outline if you like to follow along on the notes. Psalm 10. After this morning, we have two weeks left in the book of Psalms. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 14 and 53. They go together. Uh, They're almost word-for-word identical, so we're going to look at both of those in the same week and talk about why uh, why would God put two psalms out of 150 in the Bible, why would two of them be so similar and almost identical word for word? So we'll talk about that next week. And then the last week that we're going to study the book of Psalms, we're going to look at Psalm 150. So that's a good place to end with the last psalm. This morning our passage is Psalm 10. And I want to just acknowledge something. It's true as we think about Psalm 10, but you've probably noticed this over our series in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms covers a wide range of of human emotion and human experiences. If you've felt it or gone through it, it's somewhere in the book of Psalms. If you've thought it, wondered it, had questions about it, doubted it, been excited about it, celebrated over it, whatever, if you've felt it or gone through it, somewhere in the book of Psalms there's a passage or a psalm or many passages and many psalms that relate to you. We've talked about sorrow and grief We've talked about wisdom and guidance for life. We've talked about celebration and worship and rejoicing and and happiness. We've talked about death and despair and hopelessness. And the book of Psalms, it covers all of these emotions, all of these experiences that we may face as human beings. So it doesn't surprise us when we come to Psalm 10, it begins with a vexing, difficult question. And here's the question. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Maybe you were here a couple of weeks back. One of the Psalms we looked at was Psalm 73. It's a Psalm written by a guy named Asaph. And it begins with a very similar question in Psalm 73. Asaph is wrestling with the question in Psalm 73 of why do the wicked prosper? That was his issue. He's looking around. He's seeing that God's people don't always seem to be prospering, but the the wicked seem to be getting ahead. And he begins uh, Psalm 73 with this difficult question, why do the wicked prosper? And by implication, you, God, do seemingly nothing about it. Psalm 10 is beginning with a similar question, but the slant is a little bit different. And actually, it's a little bit more pointed of a question. Asaph is focused initially on the wicked, In Psalm 10, our focus is on God. We're not worried about the wicked, although we're going to talk about the wicked this morning, but the question in Psalm 10 is, God, in times of trouble, in times of difficulty, why do you stand far off? When it seems like we need you the most, it seems like you're nowhere to be found. And the psalmist just wants to know, how do I put those two things together and make sense of that? in my life. It's a very pointed question, and my guess is it's a question that you've thought about at some point in your life, you've wrestled with. A few years ago, Brooke and I lived, uh, our family was living in Oklahoma, and uh, it's about two or three years ago. My parents were coming to visit for Christmas, and so they drove down I-40, came over to see us for Christmas. You know, they bring all the presents for the kids, all this stuff, and my mom shows up at my house, and she's got this box of junk, And it's the last box of my stuff that I had left at their house. (laughs) 
And uh, it's like the stuff, you get ready to move out and you're looking through all your stuff and you say, I just can't throw that away. It's my fifth grade yearbook from Belmar Elementary. I can't throw that away. How can you throw that away? But you also think, I'm not going to be perusing my fifth grade yearbook anytime soon, so I'm not going to take it with me. I'm just going to leave it. And I had this whole box of stuff, and, you know, so your mom keeps it in the top of your closet. And initially, she's glad to keep it because she's so sad that you're leaving, and she's going to miss you. And she's like, well, I have one last piece of you at home. And then after 10 years, she says, get your junk out of my house. I don't want this anymore. Take it home. So she brings it to me, and Merry Christmas. Here's your Christmas present. Gives me this box of junk. And it had some great stuff in it. I mean, really great stuff. So great that I took that box, and it has sat in my closet in Oklahoma, and now it's sitting in my closet down the street here in Odessa. I thought about bringing the box this morning to show you some of the stuff, but honestly, when I got it down this morning, it was so dirty and dusty and nasty, I just left it at home. So I'm just going to tell you some of the stuff that's in it. My fifth grade yearbook is in that box. It's sitting right there, and all my buddies signed it and wrote things, and uh, so that's valuable. One of the things that is in there is an old newspaper that says hanging chads. You remember the hanging chads thing with the bush? I don't know why I saved that, but I saved it and I've got it. So if you ever need a copy, you're doing a research paper or something, I'm your man. Got that. It's up in, up in the top of my closet. One of the things that was in that box, this is valuable. Are you ready for this? A framed picture and it has two pictures in it, same picture, and both of the pictures are signed by professional wrestler Terry Funk from Amarillo, and he came to Amarillo when I was in high school, and me and my dad said, let's go meet him. Let's go out there. So we went out to the Civic Center. We stood in this line of people, and we got up there, and you got a free mugshot of Terry Funk, and he signed it, and we framed him because we just, we liked pro wrestling so much, I guess, so they're framed. And the one says, uh, to Landon, uh, hope you have a great life for a fellow Buffalo, because he's a graduate of West Texas A&M. So some of you who went to WT, maybe you didn't know that. You, me, Terry Funk, great alumni from WT. So put that on your resume. Yeah, some of you are nodding. You're like, this is the greatest day. Go Buffs. The other one says, just to my dad, dear Bill, dear Bill, stay out of jail, Terry Funk. And I've got it. I have no idea why that's not hanging in my office right now, but my mom brought it to me. It's in my box of junk, and I got all kinds of stuff in this box of junk. This is one of the things that's in my box of junk. Bought it after September 11th. No words on the cover. Won a lot of awards for the best uh, news magazine cover picture of the year. And the picture says all you need to know, right? I don't need to tell you what that's about if you lived through that. Some of you already, as you look at that, that uh, cover picture, you think of where you were when it happened. You think about how we watch the news all day long, day after day after day, just watching things develop and unfold. And maybe you think about the, the thousands who died in the terrorist attacks. And uh, maybe you think about some of the questions that people asked in the aftermath of this sort of world-changing event. Questions like, Where was God in a day of trouble? That's a big day of trouble, right? We don't face those kind of days of trouble all the time, but people wanted to know, where was God in a day like that? And people asked really pointed questions, just like Psalm 10, right? Elaborating on that, where was God? Questions like, did he know that was going to happen? Yes, we believe that he did. Was he powerful enough to stop it if he wanted to? Well... 
Yes, we believe that he was and is and always will be. Well, where was he then? Why would he let something like that happen? And we think about some of those questions in big days of trouble. But look, let's be honest. We also think about those kind of questions in small days of trouble. Little things in my life and in your life. I say little compared to maybe the number of people affected, but if you're facing a struggle, a a circumstance that's difficult, something you can't just make sense of or understand, you found yourself wrestling with that question. God, where are you at in this? What in the world is going on? Why would you let this happen? You knew this was going to happen. You could have stopped it. Why would you just let this go on? Where is God in a day of trouble? If you haven't found yourself asking those questions, just wait a while. You'll deal with something in your life that will cause you to ask that question and to think about it. It's not an easy question to answer. And Psalm 10 begins with that question. And let's just say this, Psalm 10 answers the question, where is God in the day of trouble? But the answer may not be what you expect it to be. I mean, we want answers. Tell me your purposes. Tell me why you didn't. Tell me why you did, God. And Psalm 10 asks the difficult question and gives us the answer. And I'm just warning you before we even read the passage, the answer is not the kind of answer that we would like to sometimes hear from God when we ask this sort of question. So we're going to read the passage, Psalm 10. It's 18 verses. We'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll discuss what it says. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face and he will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. 
O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Father, as we wrestle with the difficult question this morning, give us grace and understanding to hear a difficult answer. Help us to ask the questions of ourselves that Psalm 10 is is calling us to ask of ourselves. Forgive us when we are quick to point the finger at you and quick to look at ourselves in the mirror. Father, we pray for your guidance and for your spirit's conviction. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question in verse 1 is simple. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And the answer almost feels like you're watching a presidential debate. We've seen enough of these, right? And this is basically how it goes. Moderator asks a question. Candidate says whatever they want to say. Has nothing to do with the question, right? Moderator, that's not the question I asked. Repeat the question. Candidate, they continue to say whatever they want to say. And eventually we move on to another question, new question. Ask the question, candidate, they say whatever they want to say. It has nothing to do with the question, and round and round and round we go. And it almost sounds like you're looking at that in Psalm 10, right? The question at the beginning is, why, O oh God, do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Where are you? Why are you nowhere to be found when we need you most? And immediately here comes the answer from the psalmist, and the answer is just talking about wicked people. What do they do? What are they known for? And as you read through some of this stuff, my guess is that you say, well, that doesn't describe me. I don't, uh, I don't renounce the Lord like the wicked does. I don't hotly pursue the poor. And I don't puff at God and bow my heart up to him. And my mouth, I don't think my mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And I'm not murdering the innocent, for crying out loud, verse 8. Verse 9, I don't think that I'm like a lion trying to seize the poor and hurt them. You say, this doesn't have anything to do with the question that was asked or me. It just sounds like a dodge. But you may have noticed as he describes the wicked, he doesn't just describe the things that the wicked do. He describes the things that the wicked think. And four times in Psalm 10, there's quotation marks. The wicked says this. The wicked thinks this. In his heart, he reflects on this. These are going to be the easiest fill-in-the-blanks that you've ever had on the top of your outline because they're all just straight out of the, the text. I want you to see the way that the wicked thinks. Because you and I may be tempted to say murdering the poor and, and renouncing God and doing all these terrible things. I don't do those things. But when you slow down and you consider the thoughts of the wicked... You and I may be more like the wicked than we'd like to admit. And this is what Psalm 10 is telling us. Are you ready? Before we talk about how does the wicked think, Psalm 10 is saying this. You want to know where God is on the day of trouble. You want to question God. That's fine. Before you question God, you need to look in the mirror and question yourself. That may not be the answer that you want to hear or I want to hear, but it's the answer that Psalm 10 gives us. So we're going to try to listen to it this morning. So how does the wicked think? Four quotations. The first one is this. There is no God. Verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, 
There is no God. You and I have a word for this person, right? They're an atheist. A theist is somebody who believes in God, comes from the Greek word that refers to God, theos. An atheist is somebody who does not believe in God. There's two types of atheists in this country, around the world, okay? Statistics are pretty consistent. Every reputable poll I've seen over the last 10, 15 years or so says that 10% or less, almost always less, but just round it up to the high end, 10% or less of people in this country call themselves atheist. That means 90% of us in the United States say we believe that there is a God up there somewhere. In those same polls, everyone that's reputable falls in about the same range. If you really pin people down and say, does your belief in God impact your daily life? About 10% say yes. I don't know how you do the math on that. 90% of the people in this country freely admit, I believe there is a God. Only 10% say that faith that belief that I have in a higher power in a God impacts my daily life in a significant way. They don't square. And this is what I'm telling you. In this country, we have honest atheists who just raise their hand when asked and say, I do not believe that there is a God. And we have lying atheists who say, oh no, I believe there is a God. I'm just going to live my life as if he really didn't exist at all. It's not going to change anything in my life. What I'm telling you is at the end of the day, that's about a wash. There's not a whole lot of difference between an honest atheist and a lying atheist. And Psalm 10 is telling us, look, this is how the wicked think. They think there is no God. And even if they don't think it out loud that way, they live their life as if they really didn't believe that there was one. So, thought number one, there is no God. Thought number two, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Our friends in Kenya don't struggle with this one, at least most of our friends in Kenya, quite as much as most of us do in the United States because we live in a pretty great country, all things considered. The adversity that we face on a a daily basis is nothing compared to what they face. And sometimes in this country, our affluence and our stuff and our money and our, our insurance and our social networks and our friends and our families lull us into really living as if we're not going to face adversity. And you're sitting out there and you're saying, no, I, I know that I'm going to face adversity. I know that it's coming. But if we know that it's coming, why are we so shocked and our faith so shaken when it comes? This kind of reminds me of of Dave Ramsey. Every now and then I listen to him on the radio and people call him up and they say, hey, I had this unexpected expense that that came up. And he says, no, 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 no. There's no unexpected expenses. You expect unexpected things to happen in life. You know it's coming. Expect it. It's going to happen. Sometimes we act that way with adversity. I mean, you know you live in a fallen world. You know things don't work the way that they're supposed to work in this world. They don't always go the way that they're supposed to go. You know that adversity will come into your life in some way, shape, or form. Why then are we so surprised when it happens? Why are we so shocked? Why do we start asking God questions? What are you doing? What's happening? Why is this going on? You knew it was going to come. You maybe didn't know how, 
or when, but you knew that it would come. And the wicked person says, I'm not going to be moved. I won't face adversity. They think that their money and their connections and their power and their influence and all of those things will keep them safe from adversity. Thought number three, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, and he will never see it. That's verse 11. He's forgotten, he's hidden his face, and he won't see it. I think the psalmist is just describing somebody who has an unbiblical view of God in their mind. One of the things we've talked about on Wednesday nights in our adult Bible study lately is that when you say the word God, you got to understand that other people who hear you say that don't immediately think of all the things that you think about when you think about God. We use this generic title, God, for a higher power. That word means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And the psalmist is describing some of those folks here. And these folks just say, no, he's forgotten. He won't see it. It's not that big a deal. He's not all that interested in it. He's, maybe he's not paying attention to it. Maybe he just, the list is so long of all the stuff that we've done, he's only focusing on the bad stuff. Look, he's not going to see it. It is not that big of a deal. He won't see it. Thought number four. The wicked says, you will not call to account. Verse 13. You will not call to account. Strangely, I think this is the most common thought in our society. People thinking God's not going to call it to account. And this is why I tell you it's strange. Okay? You do a survey, 90% of the people in this country say, I believe in God. Over 90%. You ask those people, 90%. Does God know everything? Yeah. He's God. I think he knows everything. He knows everything. Okay. So he, there is a God, and he knows everything. And then you move over here and you say, is, is there going to be some kind of judgment at the end? Like, are we going to have to stand before him and give some kind of account? As much as we'd like to shake the thought of judgment, we can't do it. Right? You ask people in this country, this 90%, yes, there's a God. I think he knows everything. You say, is there going to be some judgment? Is there going to be a, an eternity of consequence for some people are going to say, yeah. And maybe they don't think they're going to be there, but we got to, in our minds, reserve that spot for people like Hitler and the worst of the worst and people who, who hurt children and people who fly airplanes into buildings and things like that. And we say, yes, there's got to be some time on the other side of this life where things get made right. There's got to be some kind of judgment. C.S. Lewis describes that, and he says, we can't escape the thought that at some point there's going to be a reckoning and a judgment and a making of things right. So you're tracking with me? You say, okay, 90%, you believe there's a God and you believe that he knows everything that you've done and said and thought and you believe there's going to be a judgment. And then I think you get to the end and people get a little wishy-washy and they say, well, I don't think he's going to call all of my sin into account. Or maybe they say, are you ready for this one? When it comes to my kids or my grandkids, I don't think he's going to call all of their sin into account. And we just sort of get squishy and wishy-washy and squeamish, and we just sort of back off of this idea of judgment, not in general. Of course, there's got to be a judgment in general, but for specific people, we say, he's not going to call it into account. And maybe we think, you know, the rituals that I've done, the religious spiritual things that I've done, they're going to sort of counteract 
some of that bad stuff that God was going to call into account. Or maybe we say, I try to be a pretty good person, and look, that's just going to, the scales are going to tip in my favor, and it's going to balance out for me in the end. So all that other stuff, when the scale tips this way, is just going to slide off. He's not going to call that stuff into account, and the good stuff is all that's going to matter. Or maybe we just let ourselves off the hook saying, well, after all, isn't he a God of love? He's just loving. He loves us so much. He's not going to call these things into account, but this is the way the wicked person thinks. He's not going to call my sin into account. Yes, of course there's a judgment for the really bad people, but I'm not one of those really bad people. He's not going to call my sin into account. All of these things are troublesome. Look in the Bible because of verse 5. He's described how does the wicked person think. Verse 5, his way prospers at all times. Despite all the things that he thinks and all the things that he does, his way seems to prosper. He gets a promotion at work over you. Her 401k continues to get bigger every year. No consequence, it just continues to get bigger. More money, better job. They seem to prosper. They seem to get ahead. They seem to have an easier life than you do. And you look at them and you say, Lord, how do... How does this fit? How do I make sense of this? And verse 5 goes on to say this. Your judgments are on high. Out of sight. Just because the consequence doesn't come immediately doesn't mean it's not coming. And just because the judgment doesn't happen today doesn't mean it's not ever going to happen. His judgments are on high. And today, it may be out of sight. But they're real. And they're coming. Your judgments are on high. And the psalmist then shifts at the end of the psalm and he begins to talk about how God is going to respond to the wicked. And point for point, right? Four quotations from the wicked. The wicked thinks like this, like this, like this. Point for point, the psalmist responds to each one of those wicked thoughts. Look at the end of Psalm 10, beginning in verse 14. We're going to read to the end and then we'll summarize this. The psalmist says, you do see, you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Very quickly on your outline, notice how God responds. Verse 14, you do see. He says, you see it. And that's in direct contrast to verse 11. He doesn't see. Verse 14 says, oh, he sees it. He absolutely sees it. Look in verse 15, he says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. We don't normally talk like that today, unless you're in the mob, and you're going to send somebody to bust somebody's kneecaps up or break their thumbs or something like that. But if you've read the rest of Psalm 10, you know he's not talking about sending his uncle or his cousin to rough somebody up. Do you remember what the wicked said in verse 6? Look what he says. I'm not going to be moved. I'm not going to face adversity. And the psalmist turns around in verse 15 and says, you're going to have some adversity. The Lord will be against you. 
to break their arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Not talking about snapping forearms, talking about breaking their power and the control that they have over people. That's going to come to an end. Verse 15, he says, Call his wickedness to account until you find none. Verse 13, there's not going to be a judgment. He's not going to call it to account. Verse 15, he's going to call it to account until there's none left to call. There will be a judgment. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. In direct contrast to verse 4 where the wicked says there is no God and the psalmist turns around and says there absolutely is a God and he's the king forever and forever. Point by point, responding to the way that the wicked thinks. And this is, I think, how you sum it up. Eventually, your sin is going to catch up with you and God's going to deal with your sin. You stop at that point and you say, we didn't really answer the question in verse 1. The question in verse 1 was, where is God in the day of trouble? Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about wicked people and the way that they act and the way that they think, and I'm starting to feel like I might be a little bit wicked. How did that answer the question? And I told you, it doesn't answer the question the way that you want it to be answered, the way that we'd like it to be answered. But it does answer the question, and the psalmist is saying this. It's very simple. Before you start pointing fingers at God and questioning God and assuming that you know more than God and have a better plan than God, you need to stop and you need to look at yourself. Before you start to wonder where is God when the wicked seem to be doing so well, you need to stop and realize that you're wicked. So in World War II, there was a a dictator. He was a dictator of Italy. His name was Mussolini. And one time, in sort of the heat of the war, there was an assassination attempt on his life. A sniper tried to take a shot at him, and it was sort of a narrow uh, brush with death, and he barely escaped with his life. And as soon as he was nursed back to health and able to come back into public, one of the first things he said is, the bullet has not been invented yet that can kill me. The bullet hadn't been invented yet that can kill me. I don't care who you are. Sooner or later, your sin's going to catch up to you, and God's going to deal with your sin. And it wasn't just a few months later that they arrested him and put him to death. How do you think it happened? Firing squad. Bullet to the back of the head. Sooner or later, your sin catches up with you, and God's going to deal with your sin. The struggle for us sometimes is that it's not on our timeline, but it's going to happen. You may sit here this morning and say, well, that's a great story about Mussolini getting what's coming to him, but I'm no Mussolini. And for most of you, I agree. (laughs) Most of you, I do not put in the same moral category as Mussolini. But I think if you're honest and I'm honest and you read about how the wicked person thinks, that even though you're not out pursuing the poor and murdering the innocent and oppressing people and on and on and on, you look at how the wicked thinks, which is where his actions begin in his mind and in his heart, and you say, there's a little bit of me in Psalm 10. Sometimes I live my life as if God really didn't exist. I know I pay lip service to him, but I just go on about my business as if he wasn't even there. Doesn't make one lick a difference. Sometimes I live as if he's really not going to call sin into account. 
Sometimes I, I look at him and I think that he's just going to forget or he's not going to, to bring it up later. And I'm an awful lot like the wicked when it comes to the way that I think on a day-to-day basis. The Bible is really clear. Psalm 10 is pretty clear. The rest of the Bible is abundantly clear. We are wicked. We do fall short. Our sin does separate us from God. And my sin is no different than yours. Whatever it may be, it leads to death. Physical death someday, spiritual death and separation from God, and eternal death if we're left to ourselves. The Bible is also clear that there's really good news. The good news is that on the day when God calls sin to account until he finds none, and that day is coming, it is coming. His judgments are on high, but they will come. When he calls sin to account until he finds none, you have a choice. You can stand by yourself, and you can make a defense for yourself, and you can plead your own case, or you can stand with an advocate, someone to represent you, a mediator, someone to stand between you and the judge. And that somebody is Jesus Christ who died for our wickedness. If you stand before the Lord on that day with Jesus Christ, all of the sin in your life will most certainly be called into account. And your mediator, your advocate, will turn to the judge and say, it's been paid. All of it. I took his wickedness. I died for her wickedness. There's nothing left to be reckoned. Or you can stand by yourself with no mediator and no go-between. And you'll give an account for all of it. Every thought, every word, every deed. It's not an attempt to scare you. It's just an attempt to be honest with you about what you're facing and what you're dealing with. And every time you and I find ourselves tempted to ask this question, where is God in the day of trouble? Why does God hide himself when we need him most? We need to do what Psalm 10 is telling us to do, and we need to just stop. And instead of asking questions, we need to preach to ourselves a little bit, and we need to remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel. That on the day of greatest trouble, our sin and our judgment and our hell was poured out on Jesus Christ. That's where God was on the day of trouble. Taking our punishment and taking our judgment so that we could go free and that we could have life. Sometimes we ask the wrong questions. Sometimes we look for the wrong answers. And this morning, as you think about this question that Psalm 10 poses, I hope that it doesn't cause you to leave skeptical. I hope that it doesn't cause you to leave frustrated. I hope that it causes you to leave with great hope, saying on the day of my greatest trouble, God was there in the person of Jesus Christ, taking my punishment taking my death, taking my hell. Let me pray for you. Father, as your people, we come to you and we believe that you are a God who gives us great hope. You have made us great promises. We've read from your word this morning that you saved us not according to deeds that we had done. And we're reminded in the the book of Psalms, chapter 10, that we are wicked people. Our thoughts and our hearts are wicked. 
And we thank you that you sent your son to live a life of perfect obedience and to die our death. And it's something that we don't deserve. It's something that we haven't earned. We can't pay you back for it. But Father, we, we find great hope in it. And we pray for those who are in the room this morning who have never come to faith in Jesus Christ and we pray that they would do it today, that they would not stand before you alone, but that they would stand with a mediator, with an advocate, with somebody to intercede for them. Father, be honored as we sing and as we respond to you in worship. We pray that you would hear our singing and you would hear our prayers. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.